0: The Blevins Franks Report with Rob Kay of Blevins Frank's Wealth Management. It's that time on a Sunday morning where we talk to Rob Kaye. How are you doing, Rob? I'm very well, thank you. Howard, yourself? I'm very well. Good. Well, once again, we find ourselves in uncertain times. We know investment markets don't respond well to uncertainty, so this morning I'd like to discuss the risk of making emotional investment decisions. Time in the market and timing the markets.
1: But before we get into that psychology of investing, what caught your eye in the news this week? Well, Howard, once again, the news was obviously dominated by the horrors happening in Ukraine and the sad pictures of cities reduced to rubble. Um, in this day and age, seeing dead bodies being piled into mass graves is, is just wrong on every level. When this whole sorry mess is over, something needs to be done to ensure nutters with the powers Putin has are not able to wreak the death and destruction he has just because everyone's scared of him, or anyone like him, pressing that nuke button. It's difficult to see positives when people are dying because because idiots are, are launching cruise missiles at residential buildings. But this week, members of the European Parliament, Parliament overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly voted to ban golden passports. The vote which saw 595 in favour, 12 against and 74 abstentions follows commitments by the European Commission, France, Italy, Germany, the UK, Canada and the US to limit wealthy Russians with links to government from accessing golden passports. Their ruled citizenship by investment schemes is objectionable at an ethical, legal, economic and security perspective. It's estimated between 2011 and 2019... 130,000 people benefited from golden passports, which generated revenue of nearly €22 billion for the EU countries involved. One MEP was quoted as saying, these schemes only serve to provide a backdoor into the EU for shady individuals who cannot enter in broad daylight. It's time we close that door so that Russian oligarchs and other persons with dirty money stay out. Covid has taken something of a a backseat in the news over the past month, But this week we took another step towards normality when the UK ended all remaining COVID travel restrictions for fully vaccinated travellers who are no longer required to carry passenger locator forms. France also updated its COVID travel rules, moving 23 countries from its amber to green list. Unfortunately, the UK remains amber-listed, but fully vaccinated travellers from amber-listed countries only need to show proof of vaccination and sign an engagement solar honour confirming they have not experienced COVID symptoms and have not been in contact with a confirmed case in the previous 14 days. On the financial front, the US Federal Reserve this week raised interest rates by 0.25%, the first of potentially seven hikes predicted for 2022. It is attempting to tackle inflation, which has hit a 40-year high of 7.9% in the US. It's predicted it will take longer for inflation to return to 2% and it projected it would still be above 2.3% in 2024. The Bank of England then followed the Fed's lead by increasing UK base rates also by 25 basis points, bringing the UK to 0.75%. It's the third time in four months the central bank has increased rates after keeping it at a record low of 0.1% during the pandemic. The Monetary Policy Committee's minutes predicted inflation will increase to around 8% in Q2 and potentially even higher later in the year. Finally, on a positive note, Princess Charlene this week made a long-awaited return to the principality where she will continue the final stages of her recovery with her family. A statement from the princely couple said, In agreement with her doctors and while her recovery is on the right track, their serene highnesses have joined I've, sorry, I've jointly agreed Princess Charlene can now continue her convalescence in the Principality with her husband and children. Princess Charlene is expected to resume official duties once she's back to full health. Well, Rob, how has the Ukraine conflict affected investment markets? Uh, as you said in the introduction, Howard, uncertain times are once again upon us. The predominant theme and Russia, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is only the latest manifestation of the uncertainties of life. To make sense of what's happening in the investment markets requires us to make sense of what's happening around us, which now is practically impossible. Most of the world's equity markets began the year at all-time highs, or close to. Since then, most have dropped by around 10% which wiped out what they'd achieved in the previous six months. Sorry to state the obvious, but the only certainty in uncertain times is the markets will be volatile. Equity markets are moving up and down more than 2% every other day because the war has created a gigantic new source of worry for investors. Professional investment commentators are trying to estimate the potential economic fallout from this war compared with the devastation wrought by COVID-19 pandemic. And the consensus is, this conflict isn't likely to inflict a similar level of economic damage. This is due in part to the relatively small size of both the Russian and Ukrainian economies. An analysis of past geopolitical events suggests stock markets could bounce back quite quickly from this recent slump. The war is likely to have a long-lasting impact on the price of commodities, oil, natural gas and, uh, and wheat. But in the past, stock markets have recouped losses, certainly from conflicts, In about six months, Warren Buffett, arguably the most famous investor on the planet, bought his first stock in 1942, just after the United States entered the Second World War in December 1941. This week he said, the one thing you can be sure of is when a major war breaks out, the value of cash goes down. That's happened in virtually every war I'm aware of. The last thing you want to do is hold cash during a war. Do you find many investors
0: make emotional decisions to buy and sell investments? And what are the risks of doing this?
1: At the the top of the broadcast, Howard, you refer to the the psychology of investing. And that's exactly what we're talking about when your decision to sell investments is prompted by an emotional reaction. As you can imagine, this is something that's been studied in some depth and it's referred to as the cycle of market emotions. The first time I came across it was in the, the mid to late 80s From 1984 to mid 1987, investment markets enjoyed a period of excitement and euphoria, which was fueled by a credit boom and a strong economic growth around the world. During this period, investment markets rose by around 140%. In September 1987, anxiety and fear spread through the markets and they fell by about 2%, which was mainly due to irrational shareholder sentiment combined with an overinflated stock value versus sort of historical price-earnings ratios. Then, in October, there followed a period of real depression and panic, and then capitulation, which was famously dubbed Black Monday. Global stock markets crashed, wiping 28% off their values. Markets settled down in November. Then, between December and 1987 and December 19, 1989, markets gradually recouped their losses, and they actually ended that period, gaining 64%. We saw this same cycle more recently. Between 2015 and February 2020, markets experienced a period again of excitement and euphoria. They gained around 80%. That was followed in February of 2020, with again, with another period of anxiety and fear when markets lost around 13% as the COVID-19 virus spread around the world. In March, that was followed by panic and capitulation, which caused the markets to drop a further 23%. Then, between March and December of just last year, markets once again recovered and moved ahead, this time by around 110%. Understanding this cycle of market emotion helps us to understand the psychology, but unfortunately it still doesn't stop people making emotional decisions.
0: What about timing the markets? Can investors earn better returns by carefully choosing when to buy and sell investments?
1: Um, After many years living through numerous peaks and troughs, highs and lows, I'm now firmly of the opinion the wise investors are the ones who spend time in the market creating a good long-term strategy, then have the discipline to stay in that market, even when it feels uncomfortable. Time has repeatedly proven they have the best chance of investment success. Trying to time the market carries plenty of risks, but the biggest is probably the risk of missing out. Exiting the market to reduce risk during a downward trending market can result in missing out on some of the biggest rebound Most people have heard about selling at the top and buying at the bottom. In my experience, seasoned investment professionals rarely get this right. There is always the temptation to stay in just a little longer to make sure you don't jump out too soon. And when markets start falling, miss out on a sudden upswing. Once out, there is always a hesitation about moving back in. Does the market have further to fall? And if I stay out a little longer, will I catch a bigger upswing? A study was carried out last year which officially confirmed what I've experienced over the past 40 years. If you had invested £10,000 over the past 10 years and remained fully invested for the whole period, you would have enjoyed a profit of £11,000, more than doubling your money. Now, if you missed out on just the best five days in that 10-year period, By being out of the market, your profit would have dropped from 11,000 to 6,400. If you missed the best 10 days, your profit would have dropped to 4,000. The best 20 days, it would have dropped to just about 700. And if you'd actually missed just the best 30 days in that 10 year investment period, your investment would have actually lost you £1,600. Putting that into context, Howard, if you're out to the market for less than 1% of the whole of that 10-year period and missed the best 30 days, you would have lost 16% of your original capital. I found that quite sobering, and if I needed any convincing to put to to bed my doubts, that was it. It's all about the merits of having a strategy and staying fully invested.
0: But what about choosing each asset class? Is there a way to predict which asset class will perform best over a specific period?
1: <laughs> um, unless you know where the crystal ball shop is, I don't believe there is. Um, in 2021, the best performing asset class was real estate equity, which returned 27%. The previous year, the asset class would have lost you 12%. Last year, UK equities would have returned you over 18%, whereas, whereas in 2020, they would have lost you 10%. We find investors typically tend to have too much exposure to their own market which is logical because the market you know best is the easiest to invest in. Lots of our clients are British and when we first meet them they frequently hold way too many UK based investment assets. Statistics show if you have a well diversified portfolio of investors you'll often achieve better returns. Different asset classes or regions will perform differently and can often significantly vary from year to year. The diversification that comes with this varied performance can help reduce the risk of having all your assets drop in value at the same time. By having a diversified portfolio, covering a range of regions and asset classes, it's often possible to get better returns over a period of time, and importantly, with less volatility. Markets continue to evolve, so we believe we all need a solution that's dynamically managed. The asset class that is the best performer one year is frequently the worst the following year. Trying to predict the winner is like trying to pick Friday's Gold Cup winner. And even the bookies don't get that right every year.
0: How do you help your clients establish the most suitable investment approach for them?
1: Uh, the uh, probably I'm, I'm probably going to repeat myself. So... Um, but it's for for us for Bluffington facts, It's crucial you carefully assess your overall situation, your income requirements, your goals, and also importantly your time horizons. Before any of us invest, we also need to understand what our appetite for risk is. The past few weeks have been really useful in helping us to understand just what our appetite for risk is. If this has been a period of sleepless nights, because you because you are worrying about losing all your money. You need to talk to your financial advisor about your risk profile. This is best done objectively with an experienced professional who can then help to build a diversified portfolio with the right balance of risk and return for your own individual peace of mind. Interestingly, those who experience periods such as the one we've just seen, invariably don't subsequently de-risk because they realise their finances have survived and they haven't been wiped out. Unfortunately, Far too many people don't enjoy any of the upturns because they're sitting in cash, too scared to commit to anything because of what might happen or what could happen. Unfortunately, the really cautious are the ones in the end who will be the real losers. If you feel this is the time to finally invest and make your cash work harder for you, but today's investment climate makes you nervous, you could spread the timing of your investments and invest in tranches. This is known as Pound or Euro cost averaging, and it can help to smooth out the volatility and over longer periods of time, potentially improve investment returns. For people who are already fully invested, and
0: those who have capital to invest, do you have any other advice for investing in today's world?
1: We, we spoke a little earlier about avoiding overexposure to specific asset classes and having a diversified portfolio. I would also recommend you don't put all your faith in star fund managers or star funds. Just like asset classes, the best fund manager one year can easily be the worst the following year. Across the world there are hundreds of available funds, from a very long list of different managers. For example, the UK all-company sector contains over 200 funds. Many of them appear at first view to offer similar investment opportunities, but the performance difference can be dramatic. Earlier we spoke about a 10-year investment period. If we look at that same period and specifically at the UK all-company sector, the difference between the best and worst performing fund is dramatic to say the least. If you invested 10,000 in the best performing fund, you would have ended the 10-year period with 47,749. Now, if you invested in the worst performing fund, your return would have been a measly 11,451. If we look at the global picture, performance differences are even more dramatic. The best performing global equity fund would have turned your £10,000 into £74,412. Had you invested in the worst performing fund, your return would have been just £19,880. Those two figures are poles apart. But to put investment performance into context, if you'd left that cash sitting on cash deposit over that same period of time, Your £10,000 would have appreciated to just £10,409, just north of 4% over the whole 10-year period. Given that time in the markets, not timing the markets
0: which counts, is it still important to review your portfolio from time to time?
1: I hope what I've been able to communicate this morning is ultimately a long-term diversified investment approach is vital to help protect and grow your capital, whatever the economic climate. While a keep calm and stay invested approach gives you the best overall results, you also need to make sure you still regularly review your strategic financial planning. We sit down with our clients at least once a year or more frequently, especially if circumstances change, to ensure their arrangements continue to meet their financial goals. Over the past couple of years, sitting down with our clients was probably by telephone or via video conference arrangements. After France finally lifted its COVID restrictions last week, wherever possible, we will now be returning to -to face-to-face review meetings. We are also hearing from more and more people who are discovering their UK advisors are no longer able to advise them because they can't passport their services into Europe. If you've not reviewed your financial situation since Brexit because of the COVID restrictions or you would like to have uh, Levin's Frank's review, you can call our Valbon office. The telephone number there is zero four nine three zero zero one seven eight zero. That's zero four nine three zero zero one seven eight zero. If visiting our Monaco office is more convenient for you, then call our Monaco office. The number here is 97775574. That's 97775574. And alternatively, if you prefer, you can find more about Blevins Franks or arrange a meeting with a Blevins Franks partner by simply visiting our website, which is www.blevinsfranks.com. Many thanks, Rob. We'll chat again next Sunday morning. Look forward to it. Have a great week. The Blevins Franks Report. If you would like more information on
0: any of the topics discussed in this program, contact your local Blevins Franks office on 0493 001780 or riviera at blevinsfranks.com. Life after Brexit. What has changed for British expatriates in France? The last two years have been challenging with Brexit and the pandemic. Has your financial planning kept up with developments? Book your place at one of the Blevins ranks Seminars on the 8th, 9th, and 11th of March. They look at Brexit, succession reform in France, taxation, investing, and UK pensions. To reserve your Blevins ranks Seminar place, call 0493
1: 001780 or online at BlevinsRanks.com.